Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Today's guest is John Nichols, political blogger and national affairs correspondent for The Nation. He is the author of The Genius of Impeachment and co-author of The Death and Life of American Journalism. Today he is here to discuss his most recent work, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, a book which grapples with the history and potential future of American progressivism, its setbacks and what it might become. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. John, welcome to the podcast. It's a great honor to be with you. So we just wanted to uh, start out by asking, um, you know, who was Henry Wallace? Uh, because I posted uh, a quote of yours uh, to social media and got some pushback because people were like, oh, you support George Wallace? I thought he was a racist. Um, <laughs> how, how appropriate to begin there, because the truth of the matter is that when I started working on this book, I had people who would say to me, very, you know, kind of politely, they'd say, wasn't he the guy who ran against Richard Nixon, you know, or wasn't he the guy hmm. who stood in the schoolhouse door in 196, in the early 1960s? And of course, no, Henry Wallace is not. Henry Wallace is the opposite. Henry <laughs> Wallace is an anti-racist, anti-fascist uh, visionary from the 1930s and 1940s, a key member of the New Deal. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of Agriculture and his vice president. Uh, many people would tell you that Roosevelt was the truest New Dealer, the most committed believer in uh, the, the best of the New Deal vision. Um, he was also an incredibly committed anti-racism, anti anti-fascism into a vision. Uh, so then why haven't we heard about it before? Uh, how, how, did, how did his legacy get lost? Oh, well, his legacy got lost uh, because he pushed harder than the Democratic Party wanted to push in his time. And uh, he became Roosevelt's vice president in 1940. And uh, Roosevelt quickly gave him a lot of authority over the war effort, particularly over production and getting the materials, the raw materials, that were needed to fight against the, the Germans and the, the Japanese. Um, it was an incredibly major responsibility and Wallace performed it by all accounts very, very well. But he did things that really offended the more conservative members of the administration. For instance, he said that uh, workers in uh, the production industries, the war industries, and also in the industries that produce raw materials should be paid a, a fair wage. Um, he uh, radically opposed discrimination. He opposed segregation. Um, he opposed the poll tax. He opposed uh, a host of other manifestations of Jim Crow segregation. And uh, in all of this, he found himself more and more marginalized within the Democratic Party to the point where in 1944, there was a militant effort uh, by Southern segregationists, big city bosses, and uh, corporate interests within the party to push him off the ticket. Uh, he was narrowly defeated for the vice presidential nomination in 1944. Roosevelt, who had stood aside that year, allowing the convention to make its choice, uh, quickly offered Wallace a position in the, and the presumption was that Wallace would continue to be a major figure in, in the Roosevelt administration. But when Roosevelt died, Wallace and Harry Truman clashed, and effectively that was the end of it. Wallace left uh, the administration and ultimately left the Democratic Party. He ran for the presidency in 1948, 
a very, very unsuccessful campaign. And uh, for a variety of reasons, he was then pushed to the sidelines of history, uh, where I can't begin to emphasize the extent to which uh, he was sidelined. When I went to uh, the home where he grew up in rural Iowa, uh, his birthplace, and a a very, very significant uh, spot, you would think, you know, the vice president uh, and, and that, it's on a uh, on a minimum maintenance road where you're told to drive at your own risk. Uh, oh. <laughs> metaphor for Wallace. He wow. he's been the drive at your own risk Democrat for the last seventy five years. Wow. So there's a historical as well as a physical marginalization going on. There really is. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually really curious about that. Reading your book, um, you talk about FDR. Uh, not wait again to the vice presidential contest in 44 um, in a way that uh, I think you could read as like uh, that, that, that's, that's the history that could have been if he would have stuck up for Henry Wallace. Yeah. Uh, he could have been vice president. And then when FDR dies, Henry Wallace is president, not Truman. Uh, and then we don't get the cold, you know, the cold war would have been different. The IMF would have been different. Lots of stuff would have been different. Um, given that he was such a fervent new dealer, um, how did he lose? Why, why didn't FDR sure. uh, stick up for him? Well, that's a very, very good question. And, you know, we hear all the time about the New Deal coalition. And uh, Democrats will often say to you that they want to reconstitute the New Deal coalition. But what they don't tell you is that the New Deal coalition was so big, so huge, that it included scorching racists and civil rights campaigners, that it included bankers and militant socialists. And so the the challenge of the New Deal coalition was that Roosevelt himself could hold it together. Mm. But as Roosevelt was aging, uh, and he, frankly, Roosevelt was in terrible health in the last year of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, And as people anticipated that he might not survive his fourth term as president of the United States, there was an incredible jockeying for position, if you will. Uh, the conservative afor- forces within the Democratic Party desperately wanted to regain control of the party. And they referred to normalcy. That was their big term. They wanted to return to normalcy. They mm-hmm. actually said in a New York Times piece, one of the leading conservatives who was opposed to Wallace, said that they wanted to return to the values of 1932. Right before FDR and the New Deal. And um, you have to understand that FDR kept the coalition together with a lot of compromises. And many of those compromises we look back on with horror. Um, The New Deal did not address civil rights as well as it should have. The New Deal did not address gender equity. It didn't address class always as well as it should have. Um, Wallace, very loyal to Roosevelt, said, yeah. Once World War II is done, we've proven what we can do. We want to come out of World War II and do it all to build out, you know, a much bolder, a much better New Deal, but to use that energy, that vision, that sense that government really can solve problems. And the interesting thing about it was that uh, um, Wallace got a lot of traction for that. The unions backed him. uh, Civil rights groups backed him. Uh, women's rights groups backed him, and, and there was a sense that, that he convention, an incredible speech in which he called out racism and called out segregation and spoke of the Democratic Party in a, in a very visionary way as a very liberal, very progressive party. And what was interesting about it was the crowd went wild. There was tremendous energy, uh, without a doubt. And then the convention was gaveled out of order, effectively. It was shut down for the night at precisely the point when Wallace would have been renominated. They used that night and the ensuing day uh, to very meticulously uh, change the ticketing for the convention, uh, put restrictions on all sorts of folks and all sorts of things that were going on. And the, the bosses succeeded in displacing Wallace. And you, I, I think I remember you in the book mentioning that, they, yeah, they, 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 they refused to let the people who had tickets in for the evening in during the afternoon or something like, like there was this really hardcore. Yeah. 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 Oh no, this was, you know, it's very interesting today that we hear people complain about, um, 
the the machinations of Democratic Party leaders and um, and the things that they do. And I'm often a critic of of uh, a lack of democracy and and superdelegates and things like that. But the truth of the matter is that um, what they used to do at these conventions was uh, jaw dropping. It was the stuff of uh, you know like the movies of the 1930s. It almost had a Laurel and Hardy character to it because it was so over the top. But the tragedy was that uh, in this over-the-top over power broker politics, Henry Wallace was pushed aside and Harry Truman was elevated. And, you know, in my book, I don't try to make Truman into some sort of horrible figure. Um, I'm critical of Truman in many ways, but I think Truman also did some good things. The problem was Truman did not have that bold New Deal vision. He did not share uh, the vision that, that Roosevelt had his best and, and Wallace and Eleanor Roosevelt and Francis Perkins and Harold Ickes and others really truly believed in. And that was you know, sort of a constant innovation, a constant use of government to achieve great ends. And because uh, Truman did not have that, the party, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, suffered, in my view, severe setbacks in 1946. They reelected, or they did elect Truman in 48, but um, Truman finished his presidency uh, with, as a very weak president and with very little accomplished. And I shouldn't say very little, I wanna be fair to the guy. He did accomplish some things and, and give him his due, but he did not accomplish what I would argue Wallace would have accomplished. Yeah, I think uh, uh, you mentioned that FDR had only met with Truman like four times before he died. So not exactly. only was there like a, a lack of vision, but there was just also like a lack of um, personal acquaintance with the policies of the New Deal on behalf of Truman, right? You're exactly right. In fact, incredibly, um, at one point in a meeting, uh, Roosevelt, who was very, very focused on the war effort, really did see it as, you know, the essential activity um, and, and did dial down a lot of his political focus. Um, he said, he said something along the lines of, I don't even know Truman. <laughs> you know, I was like, who is this guy? And it wasn't, again, I, I'm not trying to portray here that, that he hated Truman or that he, you know, you know that, that somehow Truman was imposed upon him. It was more that Roosevelt wanted to keep the Democratic Party and this broad coalition together. And so he gave the convention its leeway to choose a vice presidential candidate. Uh, but he did, I'll, I'll remind folks, send a note to the convention in which he said, if I was a delegate, I would vote for Henry Wallace. Um, and so he made his sentiment, his public sentiment, quite clear. Uh, at the end of the day, though, uh, the, the forces that were plotting for what would come after World War II, the post-war era, were scared of Wallace. They were scared that he spoke of 60 million uh, new jobs and a and a very visionary, bold, you know, agenda for government, and that wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to really dial things back and and to return to a, a sort of governance that um, that they had perhaps known under a, a Woodrow Wilson or you know, Democratic presidents of the past. Right, right. This is all kind of reminiscent of what happened after World War One as well, uh, when there was a return to normalcy. This, this desperation for a return to normalcy, which I, I, I write about it uh, quite a bit, um, it, not just in this book, but in other ones, it's really a, a constant in American politics. And it's an incredibly dangerous thing because when you get to a point where your politics might actually um, change, you know, when you might actually have a fundamental new direction, uh, even in liberal parties, there is often a pressure to quote unquote return to normalcy. Well, when you return to normalcy, um, what happens is the gains don't hold. They, they start to get chipped away. And uh, the New Deal, which had its seven, eight years before World War II, um, put in a lot of, of very good innovations. During World War II, um, you saw government you know, kind of functioning on all cylinders. And had you had that combination of what had been accomplished by the New Deal, a government functioning on all cylinders, going into peacetime with the goal of really addressing poverty, racism, sexism, you know, really trying to, to change the country in a, in a positive way. Um, 
I think there's a potential that you really could have sped up the uh, arc of history, if you will. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons that I, I warn Democrats now, you know, as they go toward caution, and as they go toward compromise, uh, they run a real risk, twofold. Number one, of not really accomplishing the goals, their stated goals. But number two, um, of not capturing the imagination of the American people and, you know, op leaving openings for their opposition. So it's sort of like a bicycle. You have to keep going forward in order to stay stable at all. Nice. I wish I'd had that. So I'm curious uh, what, you know, given, given the extent of the opposition uh, to his vice presidency um, and given, you know, Stalinist geopolitics and just, you know, the limitations of Western capitalism in general, um, you know, with, with the post-war reconstruction and all that. Um, yeah. What, what would have been different uh, with the Wallace presidency? Um, I mean, you know, I guess this is something that people talk about today with Bernie Sanders, right, is, uh, or used to talk about, uh, is that even if he gets into office. Yeah. Um, that is a really, really good question. And I get asked it in different forms quite often. One of the things that I emphasize is that my book argues that Henry Wallace had a vision in 1944, even into 1945 when he was Secretary of Commerce, that gave you a strong sense of what he wanted to do with the presidency. Mm -hmm. And what he wanted to do with the presidency was to uh, initiate an incredibly bold post-war agenda on the domestic front, to use the power of government to create jobs, to build housing, to welcome veterans back in a way that uh, could get them the education, the jobs, the housing, et cetera, that they needed, but also to protect those people who had gone into defense industries, uh, women who, you know, the Rosie the Riveter story, and African-Americans and others who, because Franklin Roosevelt had issued a order uh, integrating defense industries, uh, who had gone into the factories as well. And, and Roosevelt's vision was, to create enough jobs, to create a, a sufficient number of additional jobs that, uh, well, Wallace's vision, that uh, you could have a post-war era that was really producing a lot, that was very prosperous, that was very, you know, moving forward, if you will. Um, parallel to that, he had a foreign policy vision that uh, sought to use diplomacy and cooperation that accepted that there were countries that we would disagree with and that we would have stark disagreements with them, uh, but looked for ways to avoid a new Cold War and frankly, to try and find you know, some, some models for cooperation. I think some people you know, imagine that Wallace would have governed as a pacifist, uh, that he would have governed uh, as someone who's very cautious as regards foreign affairs. I don't think that's the case. My sense is that, that he signaled a lot of his vision during World War II, like, uh, Roosevelt and like Wendell Wilkie, uh, mm -hmm. he believed that it was possible to cooperate with the Soviet Union, at least on, on some issues, certainly when it came to fighting fascism, but he was skeptical as well. And so I, I want to emphasize, I don't necessarily think that Henry Wallace uh, would have avoided all the elements of the Cold War. In fact, frankly, if I think he, I, I think that if he had come to power, um, there would have been tensions and, and a lot of strains with uh, the Soviet Union with China, with other countries around the world. Uh, but I do think two things, particularly in that regard, would have been different. Number one, I, I'm sure that Wallace would have worked much harder to look for cooperation, to dial down the military industrial complex, to dial up uh, you know, avenues of, of negotiation and diplomacy. And I'm also quite sure that Wallace would not have unleashed the Red Scare at home. I don't think that he would have been as obsessed. In fact, I'm certain he would not have been as obsessed with hunting down domestic communists and, and socialists and radicals who um, became really very much the target of uh, the, the U.S. government in the late 1940s and, and through much of the 1950s. Yeah, and you, in the book, you talk about how that wasn't just a Republican initiative, right? There was Truman sort of made decisions about that as well. Absolutely. In fact, that's one of the places where Truman and Roosevelt, uh, or Truman and uh, Wallace really parted company and where they, they clashed. And, you know, Wallace had come out of that uh, World War II era popular front vision. And so he was willing to work with communists. He was willing to work with socialists. He was willing to work 
um, as well with, you know, very conservative folks and business folks. Uh, but his, his core vision was one of uh, a progressive uh, capitalism, if you will. And so he spelled it out in, in, in great detail. Uh, Wallace did not identify as a socialist. Wallace identified as um, you know, sort of the left wing of uh, progressivism as it existed, you know, under someone like a Robert M. LaFollette and, and other progressive figures of that era. He was very internationalist. Uh, he was also uh, very devoted to science. He really did believe, as many of the progressives did in the, in the 1920s, you know, especially the LaFollette era, um, he really believed that you could come up with ideas that could solve problems and that when you solve those problems, you could make the conditions of everyone better. And as you made the conditions of everyone better, um, you could also promote a, uh, a vision of cooperation and, and human decency where uh, you could tackle racism, sexism and, and other challenges. So um, he was a complex man, but a, a man with a uh, a real sense of what was possible. And when I read his writing, and when I read the writings of others of his era, people like A. Philip Randolph, uh, who, of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, uh, Henry Wallace, uh, Wendell Wilkie. Um, and yeah, Wendell so, Wilkie is amazing. Yeah, Wilkie comes <laughs> out. Wilkie, remember, Wilkie's almost a, a sub. Randolph is certainly a sub-hero of my book. There's no mm-hmm. question of that. Yeah. Um, Wilkie is as well, uh, and and the reason for that is that Wendell Wilkie, obviously the man who Roosevelt and Wallace defeated in 1940, uh, in short order became more radical on many issues than uh, than Roosevelt, and and very much a parallel to Wallace, and and also very much parallel to Eleanor Roosevelt, who's another hero of the book, and it, what you come away with it is a realization that in the 1940s, because of the intensity of the moment, because of the demands of the moment, um, many people really stepped up and they, they scoped out visions of the world, visions of the future that uh, were incredibly progressive, but also uh, incredibly forward looking. And one of the things I always say that is that in studying Henry Wallace uh, and others around him, I come to the conclusion that um, there aren't that many new ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had people a long time ago talking about what needed to happen and what needed to be done. Unfortunately, uh, they were marginalized by those who did not choose mm-hmm. to step into the future, those who really did want to go backward to so-called normalcy. Yeah, yeah one thing I'm, I'm really struck by whenever I read uh, writing from this era is just the, the confidence that they have in their, you know, the ability of our country and the people of the world to sort of come together and deal with these issues and, you know, that the, the problems are solvable, like you were saying, and that, you know, of course, it's a matter of just sort of figuring out what we need to do. And common sense says we should do this so that we, you know, can uh, end poverty or promote peace or all these sorts of major challenges is they, they really had a faith that they were uh, something one could solve. You're right. And you know what? Um, they were proven right quite often. <laughs> so it was a confidence uh, based in experience. Remember, um, in 1932, the uh, Hoover administration had struggled to deal with uh, the Great Depression. One of the important things to understand is that Herbert Hoover wasn't the worst player in the world. He tried to do some stuff, but he tried in the very cautious, very you know, narrowly constrained ways that, that uh, you know, perhaps minimally decent people employed in those days. And it didn't work. And so Roosevelt was elected. With this, with a great line, you have nothing to fear but fear itself, and that, mm-hmm. of course, is a confidence-building line. Mm-hmm. And and what did they do in short order? Uh, they created jobs programs. They created uh, farm recovery and and soil recovery programs to to renew rural America. They uh, created social security. They created rural electrification. They um, they did things that were big and bold and visionary. And they changed America in a very short amount of time. And then they got handed the challenge of having to fight fascism. And uh, at a point when the fascists in Europe and in Asia were on the march and had been incredibly successful, 
they had they had taken much of Europe. They had taken much of Asia. Um, there was a, a a great great debate about whether to compromise with them and to uh, you know make concessions and and you know accept the reality of of an Adolf Hitler and a Mussolini and uh, and then obviously Roosevelt did not share that that view. He wanted to. He was ready to fight. Um, the United States wasn't. He brought the country to a willingness to do so. Wallace was a part of that. And then when they fought, um, you know, Roosevelt spelled out a four freedoms. He said, you know, look, we're not just fighting to beat these guys. We are fighting for a different vision of the whole world. Um, right. Wallace, uh, when Henry Luce came forward with an idea saying, well, we'll win <laughs> World War II and then there'll be an American century. Wallace said, no, 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 no. There will be a century of the common man. And I would add the common woman. And uh, and in Wallace's view, the United States' role would be to be a prosperous and strong country, but it would also be uh, to set up a vision for where prosperity and strength could be spread throughout the world. I mean, they they believed in fundamental ways um, that that you could make your country and your world better. And they also believed that it was necessary for progressives to fight in big, bold ways to do incredible things, because if you didn't, then fascists would step up, then authoritarians would step up and say, oh, we can do it better. And they really did see themselves as in the midst of a battle of ideas. And uh, to a greater extent than anyone else, with the possible exception of Wendell Wilkie, Wallace spelled those ideas out. Um, when I was writing the book, an acquaintance of mine who was an antiquarian bookseller, uh, heard that I was writing it. And one day uh, on my uh, step, a, a big box appeared and it was from this antiquarian bookseller. And I opened it up and he had collected up all of Wallace's pamphlets. And the incredible thing about it is that Henry Wallace wrote, you know, dozens of books and pamphlets. He explained ideas and, and visions and programs. He wrote out budgets for them. Uh, and at the heart of all this was an argument that you could achieve economic and social and racial justice. You could protect the planet. You could have peace and international cooperation. All of these things were possible. And he talked about it in great detail. Right? Maybe, maybe he would have failed on some of those things, just as the New Deal failed on many things. But uh, the idea of striving toward that, that bolder, more enlightened vision of what the future might be uh, is something that that we ought not let go of. Uh, I think the Democratic Party did let go of it. And I think it was to the damage of the Democratic Party and frankly, to the damage of the United States and the world. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, one of, one of the things that I get from reading uh, the guys in the 40s is just how much they use the word future. Yeah, you know, the, the future is going to be different. There's, the world is going to change. Things aren't going to go back to normal. Um, and I, it really contrasts with the feelings of nostalgia that seem to dominate a lot of political discourse today. Yeah. You know, kind of the and, endless remake. You're right. I mean, I think you're, you're exactly right that, um, that, you know, I think sometimes you, you do have to be hit with, um, you know, the, the stark reality of, of what's going on and how unprepared you are for a future to realize that you have to start thinking about the future. And mm -hmm. the Great Depression did that to the United States. Mm -hmm. The United States had gotten through World War I, um, and there was a, World War I was not a popular war. There was a great anti-war movement. There was great, uh, you know, sense of discomfort with it. But when folks came home from World War I, then we had a little bit of a red scare, um, put Eugene Victor Debs and others in jail. Um, and then, basically elected Republicans and unleashed Wall Street. And for a decade, you had deep inequality, but the media-driven vision of a successful, prosperous, uh, fun country. And then the Great Depression came, and everybody was like, whoa, hold it, hold it. We had that inequality all along, and it turns out that the people who were running things were crooks. They were literally, when the stock market went down, they they maneuvered things to make themselves to keep their own wealth while we all suffered. Um, they, they didn't put anything in place to get us ready for 
the ups and downs of, of economic turbulence. They didn't really think much about the future at all. <laughs> and, um, and we're stuck, you know, selling apples on the street corner or struggling to, you know, keep ownership of the farm or, or looking for a job traveling across the country out of the Dust Bowl to California. And I, I think a tremendous number of people said, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. You have to think about what comes next. You have to forge a better future because, you know, normalcy going back is going back to a lot of things that, that were no good. Um, I, I love the writings from that period of A. Philip Randolph and of Langston Hughes. And the incredible thing is that both of them were saying that what you needed in, in World War II was a double V, a double victory, victory against fascism in Europe, but then also victory against what Wallace would refer to as an Americanized fascism, which was segregation, which was se uh, gender inequality, which was, you know, deep class division. You know, Wallace argued that, um, that, the United States had failed to address fundamental issues. A. Philip Randolph argued the same. So did Langston Hughes. So did many other visionary writers at that time and, uh, and thinkers. And maybe the truth is Eleanor Roosevelt may have articulated it best as well as, as Francis Perkins. Both of them talked about, you know, this notion of uh, a post-war era in which we would talk about a universal uh, declaration of human rights that, and you would have, of course, your political freedoms, but then you would also begin to think about economic freedoms, what Franklin Roosevelt talked about with his second Bill of Rights or economic Bill of Rights. That's what Wallace was all about. And that's what a lot of the best of the people in this era were about. See, we've mentioned uh, uh, A. Philip Randolph a couple of times. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about your book on reading it is that Wallace is only the major character for the first maybe half or two thirds of it. But your book is really about American liberalism and the Democratic Party, and it's a critical history. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the big things that, uh, you know, in, in the what would have been uh, question, you know, what if Wallace had won, uh, is that different people would have been in charge. So even if policy successes weren't immediate, uh, the, the party itself would have been quite different, uh, and that would have been a different trajectory. Uh, and then totally. you write about, uh, you know, the sort of, the way that these fights never really go away, they come back again and again, and not just at um, sort of the obvious high points like uh, McGovern or uh, the Rainbow Coalition in the 80s, but uh, you, know, you, you write about these really fantastic um, cohort of congressmen that come in 58 uh, yeah. and are, are already contesting the Cold War uh, and, and the war in Vietnam. Could you give our listeners uh, a little bit more on uh, some of the details of uh, uh, why yeah, this fight this, is perpetual? Well, it is a perpetual fight because if you don't solve the problems, they're going to keep they're going to keep uh, manifesting themselves, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's that's one of the simplest lessons of all. Um, I, I'll give you a very good example. The in the mid 1930s, uh, FDR with Wallace's support and the support of Congress created Social Security. Now, Social Security didn't solve every problem, but um, it really did make a fundamental shift as regards the condition of uh, older Americans and also people who were dispossessed or in a, in a very difficult situation. Um, fast forward uh, 30 years, the Johnson administration does Medicare and Medicaid, didn't solve every problem, no question of that, but boy, did, it, did those two initiatives have a huge impact on poverty in the United States. And, and so what we realize is, that when you do big, bold things, you can really move the needle. And you don't necessarily take issues off the table, but you, you do uh, kind of move to the next place. So whatever you do next will be bigger and bolder, not, not lesser. But when you don't address fundamental issues in a particular period, when you go cautious, when you compromise, when you, you know, look for the so-called third way, which is some sort of middle compromise between right and left, um, which, by the way, is always a victory for Wall Street. Um, <laughs> You know, when you do that, the problems remain, the injustice and the inequality remains. And so the, the bottom line is that, um, you know, beginning in the, uh, the 1950s, uh, there was a realization that the Democratic Party just wasn't working, that the Democratic Party had actually, during the 50s, uh, become 
you know, kind of a mess in a, in a lot in a lot of ways. They welcomed the segregationists back in. Remember that when Wallace ran as a leftist in 1948, Strom Thurmond left as a left and ran as a segregationist. And the intriguing thing is that the people who backed Wallace and Wallace himself were kind of marginalized and pushed aside, whereas the people who left and backed the segregationists were invited back in to the extent that one of the people who opposed Truman in 48 was the Democratic nominee for vice president in 52. And by 1956, both Henry Wallace and Adam Clayton Powell, uh, the leading African-American elected official in the country at the time, broke with the Democratic Party to support Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican, because they viewed the Democratic Party as such a mess. Now, uh, around that time, you started to see a rise of a, a new generation of young progressive Democrats, many of them elected in the uh, under-recognized historic landslide election of 1958. Mm. Uh, you had a farm crisis then, you had a lot of economic turbulence, you had a lot of global turbulence as well. And the Democrats just swept in. They brought a tremendous number of, of young, uh, vibrant elected officials in. And uh, as you know, a group of these people recognized the need for big, bold domestic initiatives. And at the same time, they recognized that as long as the Cold War continued, the ability to do those big, bold domestic initiatives would be undermined. And so they began to address both the lack of progress on the domestic side, as well as the need to embrace diplomacy, arms control, uh, other initiatives globally. And they were pushed back. They, they got a little bit of traction in the Democratic Party, uh, including Franklin Roosevelt's son, uh, who was a congressman at the time, was part of this group. Robert Kastemeyer, a great congressman from Wisconsin, was another part of it. Um, and they had a little bit of success, but were pushed back. And then you started, you know, really seeing the great struggle of the 1960s. And that struggle did occur in the streets with the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, but it also occurred in Congress and within the Democratic Party. And 1968, you know, the overwhelming majority of people who voted in the 68 Democratic primaries voted for Bobby Kennedy and for Eugene McCarthy, not for Hubert Humphrey, but the way the party operated, Humphrey got the nomination, he lost. And, um, this wrestling for the soul of the Democratic Party really took off um, after that 68 election. 68 was a tremendous battle. But in 70, you know, think about what happened. You saw Democratic incumbents in Congress defeated by young, radical candidates. Now, how does, does that sound familiar? Does that sound maybe even like now? Um, Ron Dellums, a, who, who came out of Oakland and was a, a very militant, progressive, on peace and justice issues, um, was defeated a Democratic incumbent. Uh, Bella Abzug in New York City, a, a very radical, very militant anti-war activist, uh, a, an activist on behalf of uh, racial and gender equity. Um, she defeated a Democratic incumbent. Two years later, uh, Elizabeth Holtzman defeated one of the senior members of, of Congress as a, you know, early 30s, uh, young progressive lawyer, you know, you really did see these incredible things happening. And at the heart of that all was a woman who is, a, a, again, I guess, a minor hero of my book, but a major hero of, of many of the things I write about, Shirley Chisholm, uh, who came up in that time and defeated the Democratic machine and rose uh, even to make a, an unsuccessful, but, but I would argue, visionary presidential bid in 1972. And, and I, that's just a, a small, it's a microcosm of it. But what I do throughout the rest of the book, you know, after we talk about these struggles in the 1940s and, and into the early 1950s, I really start to look at how they never really ended. But many of them are written out of history. The incredible work of Democratic Agenda in the late 1970s, a group of labor and left uh, organizations that sought to effectively take over the Democratic Party and came very, very close to doing it. Uh, gave birth to what we now know as Democratic Socialists of America. Um, the incredible campaigns of Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, the amazing work of uh, people like Paul Wellstone and Russ Feingold and others, uh, Bernie, a young Bernie Sanders. And um, the book ends, the book closes now with, uh, in fact, the, the last uh, vignette in the book or the last uh, story in the book is of 
uh, when I went to Detroit with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, we talked about what the Democratic Party had not been, uh, what it needed to be, and what she hopes it will be. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to know about this history and to know that these fights have been going on for, you know, at least 70, 70 or so years. Um, I guess it, sort of looking back at, you know, each of these iterations, are there, are there, I guess, lessons that you would call out for people who are doing this work today or things that, you know, things that have really worked well in the past or things where, where they've come up short? Or is it just a matter of sort of giving it another try? It's always a matter of giving it another try. You don't sign on unless you're ready to go the whole road, right? You know, it's like, it, I always say it's like getting on a roller coaster. Um, if you want to transform a political party, you better be ready to to fight the fight for generations. Um, you know, the conservatives have recognized that. Uh, the conservatives of the 1950s uh, gave rise to the Barry Goldwater movement. Um, Barry Goldwater movement gave rise to Reagan. Reagan gave rise to Gingrich. Gingrich gave rise to, you know, ultimately the Tea Party and, and folks like that. And the Tea Party and folks like that gave rise to what we have today on the Republican side. I don't happen to be a fan of it, but the fact of the matter is, boy, they, they own that party. Uh, that is a that is a right wing party. And you look at the judges they picked, you look at the tax cuts they've done, you look at their vision, they at least domestically, they really prevailed. And um, and on the Democratic side, though, there was much more of a tendency toward compromise. And uh, you would have fits and starts. You'd get a little bit of the way and and then uh, you'd fall back. And it's easy to say, well, that's you know, that's just the nature of, of where the American body politic is. But no, that's not the case. Um, I went back and looked at the polling, you know, in, in points where. You know, the party kind of pulled back on, on major issues. The fact of the matter is uh, Bill Clinton, when he came to power in 1992, governed as a far more conservative president than what the polling said the American people wanted. Mm -hmm. um, he compromised on, on all sorts of issues and really did, you know, attempt to run this sort of new Democrat agenda. And, and it, it was, I, I think, incredibly destructive. Uh, we, we've heard the criticisms of the Clinton administration on criminal justice issues, which I think are very legitimate. But it's also important to understand that he did NAFTA, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, in a way that uh, was horrific to organized labor and to environmental groups and to human rights groups, and you know, split all kinds of coalitions there. Uh, he did a health care plan that was incredibly convoluted when he should have done a single payer plan. Um, and, you know, just initiative after initiative after initiative, he was so ultimately unsuccessful, so failed on, on so many of his initiatives that he ended up doing what the Republicans wanted to do. And so you ended up with, uh, of course, their long-term goal on doing the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And it was under Bill Clinton that you, you know, got the, the dismantlement of Glass-Steagall and of uh, welfare and, and a host of other initiatives um, and it's not to say that reforms weren't needed. You could modernize, but the reforms and the modernization you saw under Bill Clinton was not progressive. It wasn't you know, a new New Deal. In fact, it was quite the opposite. You know, Bill Clinton and frankly Al Gore were running around talking about how they wanted to downsize government. And so uh, this is this is the challenge, and it's a great challenge in the Democratic Party. Um, a, a tendency toward a center, even center right politics. I think driven largely by the desire for money, uh, campaign money, uh, and the sense that you have to go to Wall Street to, to get approval. Uh, I'm hoping, hoping that uh, there is a rising generation today that recognizes that you can't do that. That Franklin Roosevelt was right in 1936 when he said of Wall Street and the bankers, I welcome their hatred. <laughs> because at the end of the day, um, while Roosevelt was very willing to work with people in business and even bankers, if they had the country's better interests at, at heart. Um, he wasn't going to compromise and, and sell out to them. And um, I think Wallace wanted to continue that vision. And it, uh, it did not stand him in good stead with a lot of the power brokers in the party. But I think, the, I think history, history tells us that FDR at his best, Wallace at his best, um, 
the Democrats who tried to undo the Cold War a little bit back in the late 50s, early 60s, Johnson at his best, McGovern at his best, Shirley Chisholm, Bella Abza, Ron Dellums, Tom Hayden uh, at their best. Uh, and right up into the current day, through Jesse Jackson's campaigns, through uh, so many other visionary efforts and so many successful efforts, I might add, along the way at the municipal level, at the state level, and sometimes even at the federal level. And the international um, level. And at the international level. So true. All I'm saying is, I mean, I don't see my book as a story of failure. I see my book as a story of ongoing struggle hmm. and a warning that if you diminish that struggle or you avoid it, uh, you run the risk of, of having history catch up with you in some very frightening ways. And frankly, I think that's the case, especially uh, many missteps that were made by Democrats in the 90s ultimately caught up to them in, in really, really devastating ways with the rise of the Tea Party and the rise of, of, of even Trump. One thing I guess I'm, I would be curious to hear a little bit more about, this is going sort of Get, I guess getting concrete and with Wallace um, himself um, and just to maybe put put ideas in people's heads what were, what were some of the things that he did like ways in which he used the government while he was in office I guess or, or that he was planning to do if he had been elected president president in terms of actually sort of you know implementing policies to uh, you know push back against some of these forces or to to for, further the interests of the common people. Uh, are there examples of just like- He was the sure. Secretary of Agriculture for a long time, right? Absolutely, and, and I was just gonna go to that. That's a very wise, both good question, good intervention. Um, as Secretary of Agriculture, Wallace showed his hand. Uh, he had charge of an incredibly powerful department. And the important thing to understand is that in the 1930s, the Department of Agriculture was a, a, a super department. It was a very, very powerful, very, very important part of our federal government. And it had huge responsibilities that extended far beyond uh, rural America. It had a giant staff. It, um, it had the ability to do things. And what Wallace did with his role at the Department of Agriculture was to scope out all sorts of initiatives on domestic level, including uh, huge efforts to protect small farmers, to get people back on the land, to get young farmers farming, to do soil conservation, which is a way underestimated uh, part of, of making this country work, to use the Civilian Conservation Corps, literally to create jobs and to then put people in the field, you know, doing big things. And you can't, I can't begin to tell you the number of folks who will tell, tell me as I was writing this book, yeah, my grandfather, you know, he lost his job at the factory. He went into the CCC. Um, or my grandfather, you know, he lost this job or my grandmother lost this job and she got something with the WPA. Um, and they, so many people, you go back, not too many generations, you'll find people who look at rural electrification and will say, you know, my gosh, that was unbelievable. They literally brought light to, you know, vast structures of rural America. And, you know, Wallace had a hand in all of this. And uh, had he become president, I think he would have taken it the next step. Uh, I, I have zero question that he would have tried to do exactly what Roosevelt did and, at his best, right? And, but I think it's also important to say that Wallace, when he had a, a real big role in the war effort in 1941, 42, into 43, um, he did hire brilliant people and come up with visionary ways to produce the goods that were needed to win World War II, to beat fascism. Uh, but he also insisted that in doing that, that efforts be made to protect the interests of, of workers, um, men and women, people of different races, people in different countries, uh, because he didn't want to see the exploitation of people in order to achieve growth, to achieve the production that was needed. And I guess this is the important thing to understand. Uh, if we want to get go deeper in and get to the complexity of this vision, it is a vision that you can have a robust economy. You can have a booming economy, uh, but then you make the next choice that that robust economy, that booming economy serves the great mass of people in the United States and abroad, and that it not simply be to enrich a handful of people. It really, at the heart of it all, is the notion of for the many, not the few.
which we now again now and again hear now. Um, uh, Sanders put it a different way when he ran for president. Talked about you know for the many, not the billionaire class. And this roots right back to Henry Wallace. This is who Henry Wallace was. Um, this is who others have been along the way. And uh, my book is really an effort to kind of raise these folks up, raise these ideas up, and to say that, that there is always a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, just as there's always a fight for the soul of the country. And if we recognize that fight, if we know we're in it, uh, if we have clarity that it's a long-term struggle, it becomes much easier in, at the end to stake out what needs to be done and to begin to do it. All right. Well, that seems like a, a perfect place to end it. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. I, I, I couldn't agree more with, uh, with pretty much everything you just said. <laughs> it's so nice of you. I'm going to try and say I can't thank you enough for having me on and for uh, your thorough reading of the book <laughs> and also for uh, the focus of what you folks are doing. I, to my mind, focusing on uh, this period and this vision is, is an incredibly vital way to talk about what what needs to be done today you know our, the past can inform us and uh i'm really excited for what you're working on well thank you that's uh that means a lot so thanks so much That was John Nichols, author of The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, which can be found via Amazon, Apple Books, Verso Books, and most other major book providers. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Brandon Murphy, with research assistance from Michael Donnelly. The podcast is supported financially by the UChicago Program on Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists and the Micro Metcalf Internship Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review, which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.wordpress.com. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.